Hello, and welcome to When It Mattered, a podcast on how leaders are forged in critical moments and how they deal with and learn from adversity. I'm Chitra Raghavan. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. My guest is Dr. Alan Tyrock, Chief of Surgery, Trauma Medical Director, and Chief of Staff at University Medical Center of El Paso. Dr. Tyrock also is professor and founding chair of the Paul Foster School of Medicine's Department of Surgery. He's an appointee on the Governor's Emergency Medical Services and Trauma Advisory Council and an active member in the Regional Advisory Council on Trauma and Emergency Healthcare. Dr. Tyrock was in the unenviable position of helping to direct and manage the trauma care after the August 3, 2019 mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, in which a 21-year-old gunman armed with an AK-47 killed 22 and wounded more than two dozen people in a local shopping center. Dr. Tyrock, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm a uh, fifth-generation native Texan and extremely proud of it. I'm from Czech heritage. My family came here from either Moravia or Bohemia, which no longer exists, uh, either in the 1850s or 1870s, depends on what side of the, uh, the line, either my mom or dad's side. So uh, I grew up in Texas and I'm very proud of that. I uh, grew up actually in central Texas. I was born in Temple, Texas. And then when my father retired from civil service at the VA hospital there, he uh, moved us to my great-grandfather's farm, the same farm that my mom was born at. She was actually born at home. So that's where I grew up. I went to uh, Texas A&M for undergraduate. I got a degree in microbiology, so I was interested in the sciences. And uh, I decided I wanted to be a doctor. But actually, before that, I couldn't decide, should I be a veterinarian or a doctor? Do I want to take care of animals, which are easier to handle? They don't argue. Or do I want to take care of humans? And so that's what I wanted to do. To be honest, my grades weren't the best. I was, you know, not the worst in class, but I wasn't the highest either. So uh, I struggled to get to medical school. It was clear I was going to have a super high battle to get into to medical school at the time. I even uh, decided at one point that this is just not going to happen for me. So I went to apply for a PhD. Uh, I was still living in College Station at the time, doing some research at the Texas Scene and Medical School in biochemistry. But I went to University of Texas in San Antonio to apply for a PhD program. I interviewed there. And even then, I sort of made the comment to the interviewers, like, well, you know, I want to get into medical school, but, you know, my grades aren't that great. And he said, yeah, your grades aren't that great. But you probably shouldn't say that when you're trying to interview for a PhD when you're looking at something else. And so I did my interview. They said, well, we'll get back with you. I remember getting in the elevator. There was like four medical students in, this, in the elevator with me. And I looked at them. I'm like, dang it. That's what I want to be. I, I don't care. I want to do that. So I drove home. It's about 100 miles. It was raining cats and dogs. Typical um, spring thunder shower season in, in Texas. And it was you could barely even drive. You couldn't see despite the windshield wipers and it was lightning and uh, thundering. And I just started crying. It's like, I want this. I got to do this. I got to figure out how to do this. And I remember even praying to God saying, God, if you can get me to be a doctor, I promise you, I will be the best I can do to take care of the patients. So a very dramatic a sudden, moment. 
It was actually, it really was a dramatic moment. It might be a little bit too melodramatic here, but it really did happen. One of these back roads in Texas, in central Texas, nearly part of the East Texas area, driving through there, nothing but pastures and cows. And all of a sudden, the rain quits, blue skies. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make this happen somehow with the grace of God. So I tried to get in medical school. I took my MCAT. The grade was for the scores were not that good. I was able to interview at a couple of programs, did not get accepted. And I said, you know what, I'll just try again. And, uh, and I did that and I got in the next year and I went to University of Texas Health Sciences Center, which is in Houston, Texas, worked hard. Once again, my grades were average at best, but as they say, what do you call the person that's last in your class in medical school? You still call him a doctor. So I got, I graduated medical school. I did not match into surgery because that was something I really wanted to do. I went to the Texas Heart Institute. I saw where Ditton Cooley was operating, one of the world-class cardiothoracic surgeons. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a surgeon. But I did not match in a categorical spot, which means that gives you a guaranteed five years if you're doing a good job in a residency program. Didn't get in, but I did a preliminary year in general surgery at Baylor College of Medicine there in Houston predominantly at Bentop Hospital. The chairman of surgery at the time was Dr. Michael DeBakey, who was the premier surgeon that everybody knew he was. I mean, the guy operated on kings and queens and all type of dignitaries, very hard program. Went through that year successfully. Would not ever want to repeat it again because it was not fun, but it was one of the most exciting years of my life. And I got accepted for a second year position in Phoenix, Arizona under Dr. Stone, who was the chairman there, a very well-recognized trauma surgeon in his day. I finished up in 1995. I met my uh, wife, my future wife at the time when I was in residency. She was an intern. She was an internal medicine resident. And I told her, if you're going to marry me, we're going back to Texas because all native Texans go back home at some point. It's got a homing instinct. And she was okay with that. But I had an interest in trauma and critical care, so I went to California at UCSF in Fresno, California, and did a two-year trauma and critical care fellowship. And like I said, I wanted to get back home. So I interviewed around in Galveston and Houston, some other places in Texas, and I also looked at El Paso. At that point in time, the state of Texas was trying to develop a trauma system, so all the larger hospitals, especially the uh, county hospitals and the academic institutions were becoming trauma centers. So they asked me to, if I wanted to be the trauma director here. And I said, you know what? Uh, first of all, there was a lot of, they, it needed a lot of work. The program needed a lot of work. It was, it was on life support, to be honest, financially as well as clinically at the time. This was in 1997. And I said, you know, I, I don't know how to be a medical director. I know how to operate, but I don't know how to be the administrator and take care of the direction of it medically or not uh, clinically. But a job fell through in Galveston. I said, you know, I have, I need to get a job. You know, I got a young wife and a two-year-old son at home. I got to make some money because I'm in debt and stuff. So I said, you know, I'll take the job. I can't make it any worse than it is. I can't screw it up any more than it currently was. So I took the job thinking, oh, I'll, you know, I'll work here three or four years, get some publications and move on to a bigger, bigger program. But I quickly fell in love with the place. El Paso is a cool place to live. People were friendly. 
the medical school that we had, which was at that time a regional campus. It's part of the Texas Tech system. And uh, I heard rumors that we were going to have our own separate medical school here in El Paso at some point in time. And um, also at that time, the uh, current regional chair of surgery, Dr. Salstein, was stepping down. He asked me if I would be the interim chair of surgery while they did a nationwide search for another chair. And I was sort of doing it for him anyway, uh, going to all the meetings and stuff in his place. And I said, sure, might as well do it. So I did it, had no desire to be the chair, but they brought a couple of guys to interview here. And I said, I don't think I could work for these gentlemen. I said, I like my job. I want to stay here. I might as well put my, uh, my name in the, uh, the, the list of uh, candidates. And I did that. And I guess nobody else wanted the job at the end of the day. And they gave the job to me and I became the chair of surgery here in 2002. Afterwards, we became a separate medical school in the Texas Tech system, that was in 2009. And afterwards, we actually grew to be a separate health sciences center in the Texas Tech system. The mothership is in Lubbock, Texas, but it had regional campuses in Odessa and Amarillo and El Paso. So then now we are a separate medical school, a separate health sciences center, and uh, growing by leaps and bounds. And so is the uh, Department of Surgery so that's sort of my story at that point. So I've been the chair of surgery for about 17 plus years here, as well as the trauma medical director at the uh, level one trauma center, which is UMC of El Paso. So you've helped develop this trauma program that saved so many lives on August 3rd. Tell us a little bit about the program and what's an average day and night like when you're on call and the range and types of cases you see in general. Sure, well, first of all, UMC is a county hospital. County hospitals see all types of stuff. We also live on the border of uh, Mexico with Juarez, which is what we call our sister city. There's the Rio Grande that separates us. Half the time, there is no water in the Rio Grande. It's dry, but we have a, a Rio Grande. And uh, it's a large city there, 1.7 million. El Paso is about 850,000 population growing very quickly. So we, we see all types of stuff when, we, when we're here. When I first came here, our trauma census, our average uh, admission would be five or six patients a day. Annual trauma admissions of just under 1,300 patients that we would admit. We are now admitting over 3,000 patients. We take care of adults. We take care of kids. We have a lot of geriatric trauma patients. We cover now 1.3 million individuals over a 43,000 square mile radius in Texas and Southern New Mexico. We're a regional referral center for trauma, but we also cover very surgical specialties. You know, when we're on call, we may take care of somebody that has an abscess, what we call butt pus, which means they have pus around the rectum. You probably see one or two of those a day, and we take out one or two appies, appendectomies a day, but we see a lot of trauma. Just the other day, we had a lady that got stabbed in the back of her head the knife actually lodged into the back of her skull, went into her brain, terrible head injury. A lot of car wrecks, a few shootings, a few stabbings. 92% uh, of what we see is blunt trauma, either due to people crashing their motorcycles, crashing their cars, or doing silly things like riding ATVs, and a lot of falls, a lot of older people that are falling. That's sort of like the growing trend. So we see a lot of that. So a little bit of everything. But we do, we're not a knife and gun club like, like let's say, in Baltimore or uh, in Chicago. It's mostly car wrecks that we try to injure ourselves. 
So on that Saturday, August 3rd, when the shootings began, you were actually out of town at first, which made it all the more difficult for you to direct the triage efforts. Where were you and what were you doing? Yeah, so full disclosure, I was in Las Vegas. Um, my mother-in-law was celebrating her 90th anniversary. So her children got together a couple months before and said, how can we celebrate this with her? And it was on her bucket, to, what do you call it, the bucket list. that She wanted to go back to Las Vegas. She wanted to go to Circus Circus, which probably would not be on my top five list, I mean, my top 10 list of places to go to in Vegas to spend the night. You know, I'd probably go to Caesars or somewhere else. But that's where she wanted to go because that's where her kids and her and her husband went when they were younger. They would go there. The kids, I don't know if you've ever been to Circus Circus, but it's, first of all, it's very old, sort of decrepit. I shouldn't say that, but it is. Um, it's got like a midway inside. They got like a carnival type atmosphere. They got entertainers and stuff. So that's where we were staying. And uh, that Saturday morning, which was August the 3rd, I, I remember waking up. For whatever reason, I was in a very melancholy mood. And I'm usually not, but I just was. There was just some darkness and just I had that feeling. So I finally got out of bed, took a shower, and everybody else was half asleep or still sleeping. And I just cruised down to the basement at Circus Circus and used my voucher so I could get my free breakfast buffet. So I had my breakfast buffet. I was sitting there, and then I got a text on my phone saying, Active Shooter, Walmart, and whatever the street address was. And to be honest, we get those fairly frequently, maybe like once every month or so. It's usually nothing. It's either somebody that was walking around that looked suspicious but not real, or the, you know, it was just a guy that shot off a gun for some reason. We like to shoot guns in Texas, but this time it was real. So I, I, I called the uh, the nurse in charge of the hospital. We called him the AOD administrator of the day. I called and I said, uh, Kennedy, is this real? And he goes, Yeah, we're getting four to five patients, maybe more. So I immediately texted the trauma surgeon on call, Dr. McLean, and the trauma surgeon who was coming off a call. Dr. Alex Reels Tovar and I texted us that we're getting five victims, maybe more. I immediately texted the chief of the CEO of the hospital and the trauma program director. And I told them, you know, basically text the same thing. So then I called back the AOD and I said, give me an update. And this is like not even within two or three minutes. He says, we're getting 10 plus patients. It's an active shooter. There may be three and there's multiple victims at the scene. So, I texted all the uh, other surgeons that were not on call. I said, I need you at the hospital, even my surgical specialists, including my pediatric surgeon, because I had heard there was going to be some kids coming. Um, that's, that was the initial thought. There was kids coming. So I said, man, I need to get my PD surgeon there. So, and I also called the orthopedic surgeon. I said, you're in charge of ortho. You guy, you're in charge of pediatric surgery. I'm out of town. I'm coming in as soon as I can. So please take care of things. I called the person that's in charge of the blood bank, said, I need you in the hospital to help coordinate that stuff. So then I ran upstairs to the hotel room and told my wife, get me, get me back to El Paso. And uh, she, she didn't know what was going on. I said, turn the TV on. And uh, she did, and they saw that. And she started making arrangements, and I, I was in my just not even jeans, just some shorts and a T-shirt. Didn't take my luggage or anything. I just jumped in a cab and went straight to the airport. 
didn't even have a flight yet. But by the time I got to the airport, she had already made my wife had made arrangements with Southwest Airlines. I tell you what, you can go through TSA very easily or fast if you want to. And I made it happen. I said, I got to go. I look like a crazy man, Price. I got to go. There's been a terrible event in El Paso. I got to get there. By then, some of the people had already started hearing that something was happening. And the passengers all just moved out of the way and said, get them to the front of the line. So I got to the front of the line, got on the, got to the place where you wait for the plane. And of course, like typical airlines now, we're 30 minutes delayed. So I I finally get on the plane. We're still sitting on the tarmac. I'm making phone calls and texting people, getting updates. And they're telling me now maybe 60 victims. Turns out it was uh, 47 total. So they were pretty close at the time. Because when you get these kind of events, you know, there's only so many rumors and things like that. So, you know, they tell me, okay, it's time to turn off the phone. And, uh, you know, I got off the phone after I made my last phone call and, think, oh my God, it's going to be a long trip, even though it's really not that far from Vegas to El Paso. It's about an hour and 20 minute flight. And I finally told myself, okay, there's nothing you can do now to say a prayer and take a nap because you're going to, it's going to be a long haul. And uh, as I told people, these things are, you start off as a sprint, but it becomes a marathon. So I, I tried to take a nap and uh, it was another very restful nap. And then I woke up and we were landing in El Paso and Soon as the uh, wheels hit the tarmac, turn my phone back on, and I had 56 texts. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't even go through all these texts and just as many emails. And I quickly scanned and saw which one's important. Just immediately after that, the CEO of the hospital called as I was getting off the plane. He says, I need you to do a press conference. And I said, okay, I just landed. Let me go to the bathroom. My bladder's about to rupture. I didn't have time to go to the bathroom in Vegas and uh, go find my car. And then I couldn't even find my car in the parking lot because my wife drove to the airport for us. I wasn't paying attention. And it, by by luck, I was able to find the car. I took off to the hospital, put some scrubs on, and got a quick debriefing. And uh, then uh, did the press conference with the hospital. So that was sort of how the Saturday started for me in El Paso when I got back home. What's it like when these um, shootings happen and the injured start pouring into the hospital? What do you do? How do you triage? And and what's the process like? Sure. Well, first of all, you have to practice. you got to drill for these things. You can't just make this up on the fly. We did a citywide uh, disaster drill uh, in October of last year. Where every hospital participated, EMS, the police, the fire department, and what it was was an active shooter with over 100 plus victims at the airport. So that and they brought victims to all the hospitals. So we did a really good job practicing for that. And, you know, practice is not like the real thing. But I always tell people, you know, you play like you practice. And I'm the biggest critic of every one of our disaster drills. Like, you know, communication was bad. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. But I tell you what, when I saw what happened on Saturday. People did an incredible job. So many people stood up and took leadership roles and made things happen. The fact that we had practiced these things over time helped a lot. Um, But they really did an incredible job. Not just the doctors and the nurses at our hospital. Same thing at the Level 2 Trauma Center across town. They took 11 victims and... The people at the scene, meaning EMS and police, they did a very good job triaging these patients. 
And I must say, going back to what was going on in our trauma center, just everybody pitched in and took care of what needed to be done, including the housekeepers. We may forgive people like that, but that's one of the things that I kept hearing from the audience or from the group afterwards at our debriefing. You know, the trauma bays were all full. We moved the patient out and went to the ER. Housekeeping just jumped in and they cleaned up the room, got the blood out, all the stuff that had to be cleaned So for the next victim. And then they went to the OR because we had four operating rooms running at one time. So it's just everybody pitched in. But you have to realize with active shooters, the event happened so quickly. It's almost like a textbook. Everyone plays out like a textbook. And it's the same thing in El Paso. It happens quick. You get a mass of patients. One or two of the patients will probably come in first by a private vehicle, not even by ambulance. And that's actually what happened here. Our first patient came in by a private vehicle. It was a police officer brought the guy in. But then the EMS started bringing patients in through ambulances. Amelia, they all went to the operating room. And I think we did eight. they did eight surgeries that day here at our hospital. And those were all done within four hours. But the, the fast, it was all happening so quickly. And uh, we did a good job that day. I was so impre- I was so impressed and so proud of the team. So, I don't know if you know that, but yesterday one of my faculty actually testified at uh, in Congress regarding gun violence, and uh, he did an amazing job. And I was just so impressed. It was so emotional how he did it, and he carried himself so well. He actually was there that day. He actually was post call and ran back to the hospital, and he immediately saw all the, the victims and. He operated just like all the other surgeons and people. Now, I understand, you know, I was reading uh, an article that that described how you actually do this and this process of doing the bare minimum you need to keep them alive. And then you ship them out uh, out of the ER so you can get the next victim in and get them. And then you bring them back and you patch them up uh, for the for the final thing. So how does that work? What's it called and how does that work? Sure. Well, first of all, you do triage. It's a French word meaning to sort. That gets done at the scene, which means the more critical patients go first to the hospitals. And then once they hit the emergency department or the trauma center, we triage them again. The most severely injured patient goes to the operating room first or whatever needs to be done. Some people need to have procedures done in the emergency department, like chest tubes to decompress a collapsed lung that could kill the person quickly or they're, they're bleeding to death, we need to stop the bleeding. And then we take them to the operating room and uh, we do something called damage control surgery in the OR. And that was sort of learned by the military. That's the only thing that's good from war. Surgeons and doctors learn how to take care of injured patients from war. So what we do is we stop the bleeding and we stop the leakage of poop from the, in the intestines, the stool, or we, cl- we plug the holes in the stomach so they don't have their gastric contacts leaking, so they don't get severe peritonitis. We go in quickly, do that. Don't even close the belly up. We have things called vacuums, wound vacs. That's an artificial abdominal wall. It has suction on it. We put those on the patient, and then we put them in the critical care unit. And a lot of these patients are so unstable that we need to further resuscitate, and we need to warm them up, give them more blood products, more fluid, various medications. So that's what's called damage control surgery. I mean, if we got one guy that comes in, he's massively injured either from a car wreck or a shooting, we'll do that. 
but you have to be even more cognizant of doing that when you have multiple victims. You know, we everybody wants to have the best care possible for that one patient, but when you've got multiple patients coming in, you've got to take care of a lot of people, and you you got to control the bleeding. So that's what we that's what they did that Saturday. I didn't participate; they did. But then on Sunday, we the next day, we came back and we did five operations out on that Saturday, Sunday. Three of those were patients that had the open abdomens that we came back and did further surgery. And orthopedics operated on Sunday on some really bad fractures because this this guy really did some damage to these people, unfortunately, with his the gun and the bullet that he used, the bullets he used. And then on Monday, even more surgery. So these patients are having multiple surgeries over the subsequent days, not just on Saturday or Sunday. We still have one patient still in the hospital. So, um, so it was a really difficult weekend for you and your team. And, and one of the things people don't realize or talk about much is that even for the medical team, there's an element of PTSD afterwards, you know, when the adrenaline, adrenaline wears off. And I know you yourself experienced it, and I'm sure your team probably experienced it. How do you, what happens and how do you handle that? Sure. As I was mentioning earlier, you start off as a sprint, but it becomes a marathon. So you need a rest. First of all, you know, you, when the work is done, go home, let somebody else take over. For like on that Sunday, the guys that were working on Saturday, I said, and they were actually to be scheduled to be on call again. I said, no, you stay home till one o'clock. I'll take care of this with some other guys. We'll take care of that. So we, we did that. But the adrenaline does wear out. And, and at some point, uh, it, it impacts you. I've talked to the trauma directors. I've heard people give talks on this from the Pulse shooting in Orlando, the uh, terrible event that was in Vegas, uh, the Fort Hood shootings that happened twice, unfortunately, at their military base. So I've heard the people talk. And the one thing they tell you is it will impact your faculty. It will impact your residents. It will impact the nurses as well as EMS personnel and the police because you're going to have guilt feeling like, well, I could have done more. Uh, you know, what, what, you know, you'll start second guessing yourself and you, you just see so much tragedy. You know, we're used to dealing with death and we see that every day. But as you mentioned earlier, there was 22 people that died that day. Plus 25 people that had severe injuries. Some of them really that are life changing, uh, that, you know, that, that will never be back emotionally or physically. So it's been shown in even literature that, um, a third of surgery residents will suffer PTSD up to even six months after the event. So what we do is, and that's what we did. And we actually talked about that as part of our disaster drills. Don't forget the after effect. So we had counselors come in. We, we met as a group, like my department, all the residents and faculty got together and started talking about the event. It was led by one of the psychologists. And that was very helpful. We also offered professional counseling on a confidential basis if they needed. So we did that. The hospital did that. We even came together as a, as a university on that Tuesday afterward, uh, about 150 people, just to debrief, just to talk about it, and to also say there's there's support out there for you. It's okay. You're gonna you're gonna have moments where you're gonna feel just really sad. And it does happen. It, it actually happened to me. It didn't happen to me on Saturday, but on Sunday, it was a busy, long day cleaning up. 
but then all the politicians started showing up. So I had to be distracted from my clinical duties to take care of the political stuff. And you have to also remember, even though you're taking care of these victims, the usual work that we typically see in a level one trauma center or a county hospital, people still come in. On Sunday, we had somebody with appendicitis. We had somebody with an abscess needing to be drained. We had the usual number of car wrecks and general surgery problems. And, you know, the ER was dealing with heart attacks and strokes. So you're still being distracted. You're getting pulled physically for that, but you're also being pulled emotionally dealing with this other stuff. So that's one thing we face. I even talked to the medical examiner the other day, and it impacted his team that, you know, with the PTSD. I know EMS has been impacted, so they have counselors. So it's a real thing, the PTSD, the emotions. But it got to me even on Sunday. You know, I was, I was walking in my car. It was like late in the evening. I was by myself. And all of a sudden, I just wanted to start crying. Just thinking, oh, my gosh, this was our town. You know, I never thought it. I always told people, we're going to have a disaster. You'll always be ready. But I never thought it was going to be a mass shooting. You know, the day before, I was looking at Vegas. And when I was driving, just, you know, touring Vegas, I was thinking, oh, my God, how did these people deal with this? And, my gosh, the next day, it was us. I remember getting in the cab, getting to the airport. I said to myself, it's our turn now. And I was like, oh my gosh, what a crazy thought. I would never thought I had to say that to myself, but it really was. And when I got that Saturday night, when the dust settled a little bit, the, my counterpart at the level two trauma center, Dr. Flaherty texted me, says, Alan, now we're in that exclusive club, meaning we had to deal with a mass shooting here in our own city. So I was like, wow, yeah, that's really true. And that's how we sort of support each other. And that's, that's one of the things we've been doing since in all of us is supporting each other. It also got to me when I was driving home on Sunday to see the, uh, on Interstate 10, we have these, uh, these traffic signs that everybody has, you know, it says, you know, go slow, wet roads or whatever. Every sign had El Paso Strong. I remember seeing it in Vegas when they had their you know, uh, Vegas Strong. It's been in other places. Now it's like, oh my gosh, now it's El Paso. And I knew that was being beamed across the whole state of Texas because these these signs are not really centric to a city. The whole interstate system has it. And I just think, oh, my gosh, everybody in, in Texas is seeing that, which is sort of supporting those. You know, I got so many calls and texts and emails, you know, supporting, saying, what can we do to help you? So that was sort of nice. That's that part. You um, talked to me earlier about this really uh, interesting thing that you tell your residents, you know, this idea if when you are in this kind of job that, Sometimes you will have what you described as good deaths, and sometimes you'll have bad deaths. Can you talk a little bit about that and and why that is helpful to understand? Yeah, so there are good deaths and there are bad deaths. First of all, everybody dies. And we have to realize, especially as surgeons, because we have to do a lot of stuff to make people better. Sometimes we have to actually, you know, we're pretty invasive with our surgical procedures. So every time I operate, I can always look back and say, you know, I could have done a better job or this could have been done differently, but you know, it went well. So I'm going to give you an example of a bad death for me, at least. It, it really, it was a rough one. It was a Thanksgiving weekend. A 16-year-old girl came in, was in a car wreck. Her blood pressure was good, but she was very tachycardic, which means her heart rate was very fast. Her pulse was fast. She was very pale, which was already telling me she's bleeding internally. 
she's wide awake, crying, saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I, I reassure her, I'm not going to let you die. So rush her off to the operating room. I open up her abdomen, a rush of blood. She probably had three or four liters of blood already. And this is despite us pouring in blood products into her. I see a massively injured liver. It was shredded. And we grade liver injuries of one to five, five being bad. Hers was a big time five. Basically, she tore the liver off of her inferior vena cava, which is the big vein that goes to the heart. And I did every maneuver I could do to fix it and stop the bleeding. I had an excellent chief resident with me who he, this guy knew how to operate. And we did everything under the sun. I went through everything I had learned and she still died in the operating room. So then afterwards, I need to go talk to her father. And then everybody warns me that the father thinks the daughter's fine because the pre-hospital people told him she was fine, that she was talking and alert. And unfortunately, the people in the ER had also told the father that. So now I'm the one that has to go tell the father, I'm sorry, your innocent little 16-year-old daughter who you just saw earlier today is dead. That was not a good death. That bothered me for so long. But you know what I tell my residents? It's okay to feel bad. Because if you don't feel bad, when things like that happen, there's something wrong. Because you got to have that, you got to have that one-to-one -one, uh, con connection with the patient or their family. Because if things don't feel bad, you're just a technician at this point. But I remember after I went and told the father, he just didn't want to believe me. Like, I want to go see my daughter. I know she's still alive. Go back and fix her. And I go, I'm sorry, I can't do that. He goes, but everybody told me she's fine. She's going to go home in a couple of days. I'm so I'm sorry. I, she's passed away. We did everything we could. I stormed outside of the hospital. It was like 2 in the morning. I remember it was cold outside. And I just sat down on a bench. And I remember it was, a, I don't know what the star was. It may have been a plant. It was so bright. And I just kept looking up there. And I said, God, I can't believe you let this girl die. She didn't do anything wrong. She wasn't drinking. Why would you let this innocent little girl die, this teenager? with everything to live for. And I said, God, you, you told me, I, I told you I was going to, if you let me be a doctor, I would do my best. And I did my best. And she still died. I said, I'm mad at you. And uh, I'm a little emotional. I'm sorry. This always bothers me. It took me weeks. I, told, I said, I can't talk to you for a while. And then, you know, three or four weeks later, I can talk to God again, you know, on the base. And then it finally hit me. Well, that's actually a pretty good relationship. I can get mad at God and tell him I'm mad at you. So that was pretty cool. That was a good, that was a bad death. But once again, what did I learn from that? I did everything I could. Even in retrospect, we presented, we, we present our deaths at something called an M&M, Morbidity and Mortality Conference. Everybody said you did all the right things. And I knew I did all the right things because I even went back and reviewed the literature. I did all the right things, but it was a bad death. If I'm going back to the gentleman that I told you about to get the, the, the uh, interviewer and testified in, in uh, D.C. yesterday, he talks about the patient he couldn't save in the trauma bay. She had lethal injuries, but he says, I still live with that. What could I have done differently? We all told them, you, you couldn't do anything. You did everything right. People die. So that 
for him, that's a bad death. But I know, and he knows, in deep in his heart and his back of his mind, he did the right thing. So I'm going to give you a couple of good deaths if we have time. Here's the first one. Hopefully, there's statute of limitations out there. So I was in a resident. I won't say where because I could be either in California or Arizona or Houston. This lady was hit by a car. She's what people call a street person, a transient. Uh, her whole body was just all messed up. We couldn't save her in the trauma bay. We declared her dead. And the hospital personnel put her in a body, body bag. They put her off in a corner. Nobody around. There's just one area of the ER that actually was in the operating room because we took the OR that nobody hangs out. And they were waiting for the medical examiner to pick up the body later in the morning. This is like probably about four o'clock or so in the morning when I got involved again. This guy comes in. He says, that's my wife. We didn't officially get married, but I gave her my, I gave her a ring and she's my everything. And I want to see her. I know I want my ring back. He says, but problem is I can't bury her. I had no money. We both live on the streets. And, but I love my wife. Can I see her? And he says, because they all told me I can't go see her because she's now got to go to the medical examiner, the coroner's office. And I said, come here with me. So we snuck into a back door. Nobody was around in that room. I unzipped the body bag. He looked at her, started hugging her and kissing her. And it was just him, me, and uh, the lady that was dead. And uh, he looked, he grabbed her hand, was holding her hand. And he says, they're not going to give me this ring. I know they're not. She has no place to even be buried. They're going to cremate her. And then I'm not going to see her again. And I, I said, here, I pulled the ring off that lady's hand and gave it to him. Zipped her back up. And that was that. It's very, very sad, but very good death because I saw the love between the man and his, this lady. Tell you what, if I do this now, they would probably be written up in all kinds of trouble back then. But uh, that's what I did. Another, I guess, a good death that there's so many of them, but uh, this one rings true too. This lady was in her 90s. She for how, somehow got burned. She had burns like 90% of her body, which means that's a lethal burn injury. She came in, no family. She was in such bad shape. I said, we're not even going to transfer her to the burn center, which is 350 miles away. And uh, because it's, it's just, there's no point in doing that because I knew she was going to die in the next few hours. And I said, let's just make her comfortable. And then out of the blue, a, a young guy came, probably in his 30s. He said, this is my grandma. I'm all she has. She's outlived all her other family. She's lived, outlived all her friends. I just want to sit with her. And we sat there, he and I, for about an hour and a half, maybe longer, in the uh, ICU with her. She was completely out of un unconscious and we were giving her morphine for pain. And, uh, and he would just tell me stories about how his grandma took care of her. She was like his surrogate mom. And, and I just saw the, the love and the passion that, or the compassion that he had for his mother or mother, grandmother. And I sat there with him. I just felt like I couldn't leave this man because I just saw that. So that, that, that was a good death. Here's one more I just thought about. I always give this one to the nursing uh, nurses. I, they always want to hear stories when they come and join us. So I, I, I always meet with them for a couple of hours. We had a gentleman came in. He was in a car wreck. Actually, no, I think it was a motorcycle crash. He had broken his femur and shattered his spleen. And 
he was going in and out of consciousness because he was in such bad shock. The paramedics told me that he told them just before he arrived that he is a Jehovah's Witness and to not give him blood, no matter what. And by the time he got to me, he was unconscious, but I, I felt pretty comfortable with what the paramedics told me, that he couldn't get blood. So we took him to the OR, took out his spleen, stabilized his broken leg, took him back to the ICU, and his blood pressure was terribly low. His heart rate was very, very fast. This is somebody that I, I would give blood to. I can guarantee you that this man would survive and would probably gone home in about five or six days. His family, his wife shows up and says, he is not a Jehovah's Witness. Give him blood. His other family says, no, he is. The nurses say, just give him blood. I said, I can't. I have to honor this man's wishes. Even though I don't agree with it, because I know if I give him blood, he'll survive. And his wife was so mad. It's like, I'm going to sue you, on and on and on. Uh, an attorney called, says, you got to give him blood. I says, no, we got enough information that that's what he wants. That's his wishes. He's an adult. I have to honor his wishes, even though I don't agree with it. And... Uh, as I was meeting with his wife again, she's still yelling at me. The nurse runs and says, he woke up. So the wife and I go and see him. And I ask him the question. I says, listen, I really need to give you blood. He shakes his head no. I said, listen, if I don't give you blood, you're going to die. I'm going to be honest with you. You're going to die. And you'll die tonight. Do you understand that? And he acknowledges that he understands that. And so we respected his wishes. And he passed later that night. Then I get a phone call from his wife. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't want to hear this phone call. She calls me and tells me, Dr. Tyrock, I was mad at you. I didn't want you to do that. But when we went and saw him, and I knew that's what he wanted, and I thank you for honoring him by doing what he said, not what I wanted, even, and he, even though he died, that was, in an odd way, a good death because – I have to respect the autonomy, autonomy of a patient, do what they want, not impose what I want. Yes, my job is to educate them, tell them what is right and best for them. But at the end of the day, it's them. So I thought that was one of my good deaths, even though it was painful because I knew we could have saved that man. And he was young. You also have to deal with some complex situations where the people you treat have probably done some really bad things, and yet you have to treat them like you would treat anybody else. Uh, briefly, how do you reconcile that? Well, that's one of the things about trauma, first of all. You have no idea what's going to come through those doors. Car wreck, gunshot, 99-year-old person that fell out of their wheelchair, or a 9-year-old kid that was playing football and has a head injury. And you don't know what, when you start your shift, you have no idea what you're going to be doing in the operating room. So you better be able to be a jack of all trades sort of in surgery at that time. But you do take care of all types of characters. We get a lot of people that have mental problems. Obviously, a lot of people that run afoul of the law. Some people that aren't the nicest people in the world. Some of the sweetest uh, souls of the world, too. So here's, a, here's an example for that. Many years ago, this guy uh, shot his wife. And he wasn't a nice guy. It was clear he had a bad criminal record. He shot his wife. You could actually put your hand uh, through her chest. 
it was that, that big of a hole. The type of gun he used. This is many years ago. The cops shot him. So we tried to save his wife next door, which she had a lethal injuries. So immediately after took care of, tried to take care of her, pulled the curtain. He's next door in the other trauma room operating on taking care of him and people were going just let this you know what die jerk and all this kind of stuff. no 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 we, that's we don't judge our job is to take care of the body take care of the person we don't you know we all we're all saints and sinners at times so that that's that's how we try to as trauma surgeons and as, a, as any other physician and nurse we're not supposed to judge because nobody's perfect and that's that's one of the things i like about trauma you know you get all kinds you have no idea what's coming in that door. So looking back, you know, at all this adversity you faced to become a trauma surgeon, all those bad grades, all those rejections, what what do you think are the principal lessons you learned from that and, and how those challenges helped you get to where you find yourself today? And and I think you're very happy where you are today doing the work that you, you've always wanted to do. I'm actually very happy. I got the best job in the world. When I was growing up, I either wanted to play for the Dallas Cowboys or be a, uh, a guitar player in a rock band. Like, neither one of those were going to work. I, get, I can't even play any kind of sheets of music. I have no idea. And I'm not big enough to, to play football. When I played, I was pretty good, but not big enough. I was fast, but not big. So I guess I had to do something else. I got the best job in the world. You know, if I want to go make money, there's a lot easier ways of doing that. Just this week, I was on call starting on Monday morning at 8 a.m. I didn't get home until 7 p.m. on Tuesday night. But I had so much fun during the time. You know, I, I get up in the morning excited. Like, what's the challenge today? And uh, you got to love your job. And you got to be persevering. You know, I tell the residents, you know, when you're on call, the surgery residents, be the best. Don't be good. Be great. There's always somebody smarter than you. There's somebody always just me better than you, but that's okay. Be the best doctor in the hospital when you're on call. Because if you're trying to be the best doctor when you're on call, hopefully the other persons that are on call too will be the best doctor or the best nurse or the best whatever that's taking care of these patients. Treat the patient as if it's your mom or your grandma. Would you want your grandma treated half-assed? No, you don't. So do that. I, I know I'm not the best surgeon in the world. I'm really not. I don't think I am technically the best. But I know the patients know that when I go there, I'm going to give them 110%. And that's what I tell. I try to ingrain in my residents and my junior faculty. And I got an incredible number of amazing faculty, young and old. And they had the same mindset. Go there. Don't be good be the best that you can be. And that's what we're trying to instill in my department, not my department, our department of surgery here, be the best department of surgery in, in the Southwest. You know, I tell people, you know, El Paso is the sixth largest city in Texas. We're actually the 19th largest city in this country. We cover a big area. Why can't we be good? We, we, when I came here, we were a small surgery department, worked hard, put out good residents, taught the medical students well. But now I want us to be bigger than that. I want us to be strong academically, strong clinically, be a regional academic referral center for the Department of Surgery and just do the best we can. So it's exciting. It's fun. This has been a great conversation, Dr. Tyrock. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. 
thank you. Thank you for letting me uh, talk to you this morning. Dr. Alan Tyrock is Chief of Surgery, Trauma Medical Director, and Chief of Staff at University Medical Center of El Paso. Dr. Tyrock was in charge of directing and managing the critical care of the August 3, 2019 mass shooting in El Paso, Texas. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.